Boys and girls, welcome back to the Carnage House podcast. Today we got a serious one, but it might be a bit of fun as well. I'm very happy to be talking to James Lawrenson, the director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at UTS, a writer for Australian Financial Review, uh, South China Morning Post, among others, and an economist by background. How are you going, James? I'm going good, thanks, Dougal. It's great to be back on the show. It's good to see you again. It's about a year since we last talked. Um, we got in the show today, we got some topics that is dominating the news headlines. We got the China-Australia relationship broadly, the Confucius Institutes, One Belt, One Road, trade relationship, Xinjiang, as well as your fan favourites, Alpha Male of the Week, Beta Male of the Week, and uh, fan questions. So I'm going to start off by asking you where are we at in the Australia-China relationship? And I've got a few little headlines that I'm going to read out to put this into context for the audience. Uh, it's definitely gotten worse since we last spoke, but George Christensen uh, reacting to Scott Morrison. He said, the Prime Minister is, is reminded of the 1930s when looking at global instability today. No prizes for guessing who is playing the role of Nazi Germany, referring to China. Peter Dutton said that a hot war between China and Taiwan cannot be discounted. The Global Times, Chinese state media, suggested China retaliate against Australia with long-range strikes if Australia gets involved in Taiwan militarily. China has also decided to recently halt all activities under the framework of the Australia-China Strategic Economic Dialogue. Now, James, last year you said the PM was striking the right balance managing China ties in your article in the AFR. But then recently you told CNBC that there's not really any good prospects for this relationship to get back on track. So there's a lot of content there, but I'm just going to throw this over <laughs> to you. And can you explain this dilemma that we're in for the Australian public? Yeah, thanks, Dougal. Look, I'll, I'll just start off with an observation you made then, which was that 12 months ago, my view was pretty supportive and backing the Morrison government's handling of China relations. Um, I, I remember that. Um, I was... When Morrison took on the Prime Ministership, um, a few things he said at the beginning kind of gave me some encouragement that he was striking a, a pretty useful balance uh, between, um, you know, engagement with China but also protecting against the risks. Uh, but look, I've got to be honest with you, over the last year, as I've watched things unfold, um, I'm losing that confidence. Um, and what we seem to be in now is this downward spiral. Scott Morrison's own line on the China relationship is that we have, to quote him, we have done nothing to injure the relationship, nothing at all, right? In other words, it is all China's fault. Sorry, I just can't buy that. I mean, I'm not going to sign up to some, you know, dumbass Team Australia approach because we have done things that have not been helpful. Of course, you mentioned a couple of examples coming from the Chinese side that haven't been unhelpful as well. So when the Beijing, the Chinese foreign ministry says it's all Australia's fault, well, I think that's also ridiculous. Uh, but that's the situation we're in. Morrison also says he's aiming for a new settling point, a new settling point. If we just stand up to China enough, eventually they'll back down. Oh. Now, I don't know what the hell gives him the confidence or other people in Canberra that we're going to reach a new settling point. What it seems to me is happening is that we're in an ongoing downward spiral. Um, yes, we may get to a settling point in the sense that you hit rock bottom, uh, but that's not a settling point I think Australia should be happy with, particularly if other countries in the region are able to achieve a settling point with China that's at a much more um, productive um, mm. level. 
So, yeah, oh, maybe just one other final comment. There's been a lot of talk about war with China mm. in Australia over the last two weeks. You know, it's interesting. There's a lot, there's 10,000 kilometres between Sydney and Beijing. Mm. There's a lot of countries mm. in between Australia and China. Southeast Asia, Japan, Korea, you know, pretty important countries. Uh, they're not talking mm. about war with China. So, you know, I just think any sort of critical self-reflection in Australia would ask, why is it that we're having this such a vigorous discussion when all the countries that are actually closer to China geographically and frankly have much bigger geopolitical problems with China as well? I mean, you know, maritime disputes, land border disputes in the case of China and India, they're kind of keeping calm, keeping calm while we're hyperventilating. So I'll stop there. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, this podcast is not really about my editorial position, but I'm going to give you a little one, <laughs> which is that this, you know, the, the decline of the Australia-China relationship, and then you have the, uh, the macho men talking about war, is probably one of the dumbest foreign policy decisions I've ever seen. Now, I'm, I'm not trained in foreign policy, but it seems like sometimes maybe the child in the court needs to tell the emperor he's not wearing any clothes. And China is very important to Australia. The Chinese people are great. We're obviously going to have a bunch of reservations and criticisms of the CCP. But China's not threatening Australia. They're not threatening really any Western countries. I mean, there's some disputed islands over oil um, off China's coast. But I mean, America's got an extrajudicial prison in Cuba. So, you know, what are we, what are we saying? Like, we're going to get down into the nitty gritty and actually talk about what are some of the more specific issues in detail. But I noticed, I think it was Alexander Downer, I think, wrote an article recently um, saying that the only way to fix the Australia-China relationship broadly is through some face-to-face -face meetings. Now, do you see any hope of fixing it um, do you see any any political capital that might suggest fixing it is possible? Or are we just going to be stuck in a downward spiral? Yeah, I think we're going to be stuck in a downward spiral because I see no evidence in Canberra um, for a bit of self-reflection, uh, rather, and a, and a change of tact. Instead, what I see is a doubling down on the current approach. Um, I, I actually think, Dougal, we're at a point now where there's so many egos within the government but also in you know, ministers' offices and in, within the bureaucracy that are invested in the China approach. Since, I mean, this is not, the tough on China stand didn't just happen last year, it started in 2017. Um, they're so invested in that, their only mentality now, they just can't bring themselves to mm. admit, well, maybe if we had handled things differently, we might not be in this position. So you know what we're gonna do, we're just gonna double down and we're gonna triple down if mm. necessary. Um, and as long as that's the case, well, China's not going to change its mm. position. It it's not picking up the phone. We know that. Well, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of change in policy of, of twenty seventeen when when it's it, it almost like you don't you didn't notice it because the media started parroting this line and, and the government policy started started reflecting the the more anti China position, and and it makes me think like <clears throat> the West at least as far as I can tell, really started their relations with China in 72 when Nixon went and visited, right? And that was under Chairman Mao, just right at the end of the Cultural Revolution where they literally killed tens of millions of people. It doesn't seem to me that China's worse now than they were back then. It doesn't seem to me they're committing worse crimes in their own country or internationally than they were back then. What do you think is the reason for the change in approach from the yeah. Australian government or Western countries more broadly? 
Good question, and, th and that is a fair point. You know, we managed to, as in Australia's case, we managed to strike diplomatic relations with China in 1972, um, when China was a, you know, if we think China's different from Australia in terms of interests and values now, well, back mm. in 72, that was certainly even more the case. What is clearly different is China's power, mm. right? So back in 1972, the ability of China to, you know, um, you know, push up against Australia's interest was pretty limited. Um, the, the sizes of our two economies were actually quite similar. I mean, just staggering now. Now China's economy is mm. sort of more than 10 times bigger than the Australian ones. So that's plainly part of it. Um, look, it, it's, you know, the, U the US comes into this as well. Um, it now decide has declared China a strategic competitor. Um, the US is used to being the top dog. Um, now it, China is a peer competitor to it, um, and that's producing some anxiety attacks, not only in Washington, but also in Canberra, because deep in the Australian psyche is this this fear of abandonment mm. um, that Alan Gingell, um, a, you know, an eminent Australian foreign policy practitioner, wrote a book about in 2017, and this desire to attach ourselves to a great and powerful friend. So we worry that our great and powerful friend may not be so great and powerful mm. now when they're stacked up against China. Mm. Maybe a, a type of submissiveness <laughs> in uh, Australia's deep psyche. Um, now... <laughs> It's, uh, I was wondering why you were smiling when I was giving that answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my, my mind tends to wander uh, on these things. Um, now, when I have personal conversations with people um, about China, I often find when I get down kind of past the issues of, you know, China's done a bad thing, and then I say, well, so have we. Why are we so angry at them? Yeah. At the bottom of it, I, I usually get to this level of... <coughs> I am more comfortable with America being the world police than China, and I would rather America be in power than China. And I think we get a sense, like, you'll see this the language all over the place, like how do we limit China's rise, as if limiting a country's economic upliftment and well-being is just, like, automatically a good thing that's right. in our interests. Like, do you, think there's, do you think there's a reason why we should be aiming to limit China's rise? Uh, no, and here's why: because I don't think we can limit China's rise. That's mm. so. It's a self-defeating strategy. It, we, we burn our bridge with China, um, and we don't achieve our objective. You know, if it, if it were possible, then maybe you might be able. I'm still not sure it'd be a great idea, particularly from Australia's perspective. Right? This is a country that that wants and has the purchasing power to pay top mm. dollar for Australian output. So it's great for Australian jobs and government tax revenue and so on. Um, but in the end, China is a country of 1.4 billion people, um, large geographical area, uh, puts a premium on education, science and technology and so on. So yes, there's still plenty of areas where the West, you know, principally the United States, is ahead of China. But you're seeing it right across the board now, more and more areas where China is catching up. To, mm. or, or actually exceeding. 5G, for example, has exceeded the capabilities of the United States. So we have this deep conceit. Um, you see it particularly in Washington, but I think you see it in Canberra as well, that the only way China's got to where it is is because they've stole our technology. Oh, mm. God, I mean, how embarrassing, right? Mm. If you look at, for example, in MySpace Academia, if you look at um, peer-reviewed scientific publications, 
in, across the board, you know, there's a bunch of areas where now China is the, the leading producer of mm. that knowledge creation. So I just think it's fundamentally wrong. We can slow China's growth and piss them off in the process, mm. um, but they're still going to progress um, and, and we're going to destroy our relationship with China in the process. Mm. Mm. Now, I want to take a quick break to discuss one of our favourite segments, Penthouse Alpha Male of the Week. Now, we give away a Penthouse magazine every week. It's a beautiful book. It's got some fantastic articles as well as some other, uh, what would you call it, goodies inside. Um, so last week we threw it to the audience and Visna Voss came back to us. He nominated a guy called Arta Pulowski over in Canada and his nomination was for... Uh, holding a church service and getting arrested by the police anyway. Um, so that was kind of based. So you're going to get a penthouse magazine. And if you guys want to nominate for next week, we'll announce you on the show and we'll send you a free penthouse magazine. So tell us who has been the alpha male and, uh, and you'll win a penthouse magazine. Now, James, back to our conversation. We're going to talk about a few of the more specific things. Confucius Institute, One Belt, One Road and Trade. Yep. Some of this we covered last year, but it's gotten even, the situation's gotten worse. So last year we found that there was some cancelling, I believe, uh, in New South Wales public schools of right. the Confucius Institute programs. Um, but now we find that uh, Maurice Payne has ordered that Australian universities submit their Confucius Institute contracts for submission by June um, to see if they're in the national public interest. Um, and then we had from Senator James Pat Patterson, who's getting a beta male nomination of the week this week, he said his quote is that universities should carefully consider whether hosting an entity funded by a foreign authoritarian government engaged in serious human rights, ab rights abuses for the purposes of promoting its soft power is something consistent with their values. So what do we do about the Confucius Institute? What do we say about it? Yeah, well, let's see, you've, you've packed a lot of information in there, so I might just start talking. You pull me back on track if I drift mm. off too much. Um, first of all, in terms of lodging Confucius agreements with Canberra, look, if it's just about transparency, that's fine, right? No one's got a problem with transparency. The question is whether, after providing that transparency, um, the foreign minister then makes a decision to tear up the agreements, right? That, that's where the debate is. It's not about mm. transparency. Um, when it comes to Confucius Institutes, we're at a very interesting stage at the moment. Um, because it's not clear what Maurice Payne, our foreign minister, is going to do. For example, we know just last week, I learned this, that um, Sydney University has actually renegotiated the contract with its Confucius Institute and its Chinese partner in a way that the Attorney General's department says it's entirely happy with. So that they see no um, reason now for Sydney University to register their Confucius Institute in terms of the, the, the foreign interference and transparency right. issues. So, you know, it would be quite something if the Attorney General's department says, we've got no concerns around foreign interference here anymore, um, we've had a look at it, it's all fine, but then you've got the Foreign Minister tearing it up um, because it's somehow contrary to the, the national interest. Well, if it's not about foreign interference, what is the national interest that's being the line that's being crossed here? Uh, I think that'd be a tough one for Maurice Payne to explain. I mean, I've just got concerns about just this one person at a point in time defining what the national interest is. Mm. You know, I thought I thought we were a liberal democracy where your views and my views are all fed into the mix and that was all fine. Mm. But that's not the situation we're in now. We have a person in Canberra who can make a decision 
at a point in time to, to define, you know, Team Australia. Again, this bloody Team Australia approach. Mm. Yeah, I know, it, look, it may play well at the pub, uh, but I think if you sat down after a few beers at the pub and you explained the problems with it, I think most people would get it. That this, you know, this enforcing uniformity of views is not the Australian way. That's the bloody Chinese Communist Party's way. Mm. Mm. Well, I couldn't be more... Uh, in line with you there and the Confucius Institute is one thing which I feel like I can actually speak on with some level of authority given that I have been through it right in that I was in a in a high school with a Chinese Confucius program that's how I learned Chinese um, and then through the Confucius Institute I went to China on a on a one semester scholarship to Fudan University um, and what I found really interesting was that in the Confucius classroom where I studied Chinese in high school it would have been the least political out of all of my subjects. I mean, you look at the English curriculum or the history curriculum, what they put in there. I mean, I think all of our speeches, for example, in, um, in, in the speeches unit in year 12 English were all, you know, intersectional feminist type of speeches. And I'm not here to, in this episode at least, give a critique of that, but there's zero political balance throughout the whole of the curriculum. I mean, I felt like when I got to Chinese, that was my break from the politics. Right. I actually wrote an article to SMH refuting a, a, an article that, that came out at the time about it. Um, but, but I found there was actually zero political content taught. Um, when I, even when I went to China, um, you know, you'd expect them to be brainwashing about how good the CCP is, why, China, why Taiwan's part of China, why Hong Kong's part of China, why the South China Sea's part of China. I didn't get any of that, man. I got how to do right. characters and calligraphy and make dumplings, right? Yeah, um, it's, useful skills. It's, 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 yeah. it's just not true. And the, and the people in the Confucius Institute classes that I know, um, you know, will say exactly the same thing. But, but one more interesting point is that we talk about the national interest, I mean, when I went to, I went to a school that had four kids in year 12 in my Chinese class, right? I was lucky I went to a private school so that could be funded. Now, you go to a public school, do you know how hard it is to learn Chinese? Yeah. Like, there's hardly anyone yeah. who will actually sign up to learn it. And then when they get to the highest ages of year 11 and 12 or even in university yeah. or whatever, there's no other kids who'll do it. And so the school can't put the program on. And the Confucius Institutes, they're offering free money and free teachers to come over and train Australian yeah. kids how to learn Chinese which is the most important language they could possibly learn. Yeah. And Australia saying, uh, no, you know, it's foreign interference laws. When at the same time, you've literally got hundreds of thousands of Chinese kids probably every year coming to Australian universities and you don't hear complaints from them. I mean, there's probably the kids of the biggest leaders in China who all go to foreign universities or Ivy League schools or whatever. You don't hear them complaining about, you know, their kids being indoctrinated. And Australia were kicking up a huge fuss about it. And it's just not true. So is it too early for me to jump in with a beta male nomination? Yeah, you um, jump in with a beta male nomination. Well, well, you mentioned James Patterson before, um, mm. talking about, you know, um, the, the, uh, the values challenge of that China presents on our university campuses. So, so the obvious thing for James Patterson to do would be to stump up funding for language training in Australian universities, mm. right? Mm. Is he... I, I must have missed it, Dougal, but I haven't seen him enthusiastically embracing increasing funding for Australian universities mm. in language training, actually, across the board. So it's a bit of a disingenuous position, if you ask me. Mm. Yeah, surely having a Australians who can speak Chinese is going to be immensely advantageous for Australia's future. Try doing business in China. It's one of the hardest things ever. And uh, if you speak Chinese, it makes it makes it a lot easier. So, James, you're going to get another touch-up back at the end of this podcast, if you're watching, which, I'm, which I know you are. Um, 
Now, on to... This is going to be a long segment because we've got a lot of things to get through. One Belt, One Road. Now, Maurice Payne, again, uh, exercised her veto powers to terminate the One Belt, One Road agreement between Victoria and China. Now, you point out a lot that it's a memorandum of understanding. It's not binding. Oh, and yeah. And... Yeah. Um, but people seem to be very happy. A lot of people I talk to seem to be very happy because they think that we're part of some kind of global takeover bid by the Chinese government. Uh, what, what's, what's your thoughts on the whole situation? Yeah, people just love, um, you know, sticking out their chest and puffing it up in front of China. You know, if you can give China a bit of a poke in the eye, all the better. So I was like, okay, well, what, what are you actually achieving? So we tore up this agreement, um, you know, with a completely disingenuous line that it wasn't just about China. The only two other agreements that got tore up, one was from, we struck with Syria, I think it was in the yeah. mid-1990s. Oh, this is just a joke, yeah, right? Yeah, one with Iran. Yeah, woo! Um, so it's all about China. Um, completely, so yeah, it's non-legally binding, so, um, you know, it had no impact on the Victorian government's decision-making, um, or, or it had no obligation for the Victorian government in terms of its decision-making, <coughs> let alone the national government. And the other thing is, Dougal, is there was just a simple, easy alternative. I think that's a point that I think is often missed. That agreement was due to expire in 2023, right? So everyone can see it's publicly available, unlike the federal government's Belt and Road Agreement, by the way, which was signed in 2017, which they've never released. I mean, how ironic is that? The federal government has signed a deal. Really? Did they sign Yes, one? yes, they did. Um, cooperating with China in third countries on Belt and Road projects. I was in, but just a quick aside, I was in Beijing in April 2019 when Francis Adamson, the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Scott Morrison sent her over to Beijing um, to talk up. Um, Australia was looking forward to engaging with China in the future on the Belt and Road Agreement. So w oh, what really? a joke. Anyway, um, so the Australian government could have told the Victorian government, look, come 2023, we're not going to let you extend that. So, you know, just sort it out with China, right? And so it would have just been a very diplomatic, face-saving way. To, federal government gets what it wants. Um, not, but instead, you know, the decision was made to blow it up and throw it in China's face. That, mm. That's what happened. And, you know, some, no one's explained to me how Australia's national interest is served by that approach. Mm. Now, for people watching, the One Belt, One Road, you know, like like a fair amount of China's policy, as far as I can tell, it's a little bit fuzzy, right? It's hard to actually see what it actually is. But from what we can tell, it's Chinese investment in infrastructure projects in other countries to, like, encourage trade, right? Um, you know, it, it's, it, it's supposed to be reflective of the Silk Road um, back in the day, a few thousand years ago. And one of the funny things I find is that, like, it's literally one of the most productive things a country can do with their money is going and building good infrastructure in other countries. Like the one example I remember researching is this friendship bridge in, I think, Serbia, where it previously took, uh, you know, people like 50 minutes to get to work because they couldn't cross this bridge. Chinese funding comes in, they build this bridge, it takes 10 minutes, you know, right. great, for, great for the economy. Um, you know, our foreign policy seems to have a lot to do with like encouraging other countries to adopt climate change policies and like diversity and things like that. I like the idea of building bridges instead. And then we still come back with this idea of, um, you know, the main criticism of it is that it's debt trap diplomacy. And you dealt with that last time. I remember the quote was, it's bollocks. Yeah, I'm sticking been, with that, by the way. There's yeah. been more yeah. academia on it, suggesting yeah. that it, it's totally untrue and unfounded, yeah. but it continues to get parroted by, by people in the Australian government Correct. as well. Yeah. And so, you know, we talk about um, disinformation coming from China and Russia and 
Look, sure. Let's let's keep let's have our eyes wide open to that. But what just terrifies me is when disinformation comes from within the Australian government or mm. on the front page of Australian newspapers. What do you think is going to be more corrosive to our democracy? Some foreign ministry spokesperson in Beijing, you know, engaged in wolf warrior diplomacy, saying some really nasty things about Australia, or something that's patently wrong but kind of sounds you know possibly true on the front page of the Australian, or coming from our from, coming from Canberra. There's no comparison in my book mm. and yet we're more alarmed by the disinformation from overseas rather than from internally mm. Mm. and the one there's one example which I, I believe I remember it correctly it's like China had a massive investment into Philippines like state power grid for example yeah um, I believe they own a majority of Philippines like electricity grid and even though they're having a dispute in the South China Sea over over territory it's not like China's switched off the electricity or, or at least I haven't seen any threats to do that and like the there's plenty of other examples of China investing in in other countries doing debt renegotiations doing like interest loan freezes and things like that and it the, the debt trap diplomacy stuff seems to be patently untrue yeah, well, I can't add anything more. I mean, the facts and evidence are clear on this, but it terrifies me that there's still people in the Australian government who have this... It's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a narrative, right? Mm. It's, it's a weaponised narrative that isn't based on any facts and evidence. Mm. Now, you're by training uh, an economist, and so I want to ask you a little bit about trade. Sure. Um, which also ties a bit into the One Belt, One Road. We've got the review of the Port of Darwin, yep. which, was, uh, which had a 99-year lease taken out by the land... Bridge Group, which is Chinese owned, uh, that was in 2015, um, and so that's that's under review. Last time we even talked about some cattle stations that mm. I think got reviewed, cattle station purchases. Um, you said uh, in a quote, uh, "What's at risk is new investment." We've seen numerous data sources that new Chinese investment flows into Australia have absolutely tanked. Correct. Um, so where's Australia at in terms of? Um, I mean, what do you think about Chinese ownership yeah. of? Of Australian land, and can you clear up a little bit? This is sometimes, uh, I think, a problem for people and and for me as well. Is that every time a big Chinese company buys something, it's always a Chinese company with CCP links, right? Yeah. And that's presumably because basically every big company in China has CCP links. So, what's what's your view of of kind of Chinese ownership of Australian assets? Look, I just want a rational discussion. So I, I'm all for you know being clear-eyed about connections between Chinese companies. And if you're talking about a state-owned company, then obviously there's a direct connection with the Chinese government. But even private companies, you know, there's, there's going to be... You'll be able to identify links, right? Yeah. But to me, that's not the main issue. To me, the main issue is what precisely are the threats that these companies present to Australia? That's a separate conversation, right? Yeah. Um, and I think we see that over and over again where we just get... We just go off... Um, um, you know, in hyperventilation rather than rational thinking. For example, last year, you know, if you want to stop a Chinese company from owning um, a telecommunications network, fair enough, okay? You know, I think we can sort of all get ahead around how that could potentially be a problem. But last year, we saw the Australian government block the sale of a dairy and drinks manufacturer <laughs> that was owned by a Japanese company and they stopped them s selling it to a Chinese company. Now, well, you know, that's, I look at those, and I mentioned before how my position on the Morrison government has shifted a bit. It's those sorts of decisions that I just look at and just can't explain through any rational lens. 
um, that leads me to be really worried. On Darwin Port, look, I, let's just stick with the facts, right? In t- t- 2015, the Secretary of Defence, the boss of ASIO, the head of the Australian Defence Forces, you know, these aren't wussies on China, right? These are the people who are most concerned about China. They all ticked off on the deal and said it didn't involve a security threat. You had voices in Australia, such as Peter Jennings from the Australian Pol- Strategic Policy Institute, s- saying it was a risk for spying, the Chinese could close the port to Australian access. You know, people like Dennis Richardson, the Secretary of Defence, um, just laughed at those sorts of suggestions. So if we're going to tell, if we're going to tear up a commercial agreement, because that's what the Darwin Port deal is, um, then we really, surely owe it to everyone, including ourselves, to be clear about what precisely are the risks. Now the story is, oh, well, our geostrategic environment has become more threatening. Well, okay, so again, tell me, in Darwin, what is the problem? If we're about to have a war with China, can I suggest owning a bloody wharf in Darwin is probably not going to be the most vital strategic asset. We're going to need to build a military base, right? And there's nothing stopping us right now. Landbridge can own the wharf and, you know, 50 kilometres west or wherever, let's build a military base. I mean, that's, uh, you know, so this fixation we have with Darwin Port tells me that something else is at play here and it's not Australia's national interest and it's not serious security issues either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it is. It's an interesting question. What is behind? What is behind mm-hmm. the, the change in tactics? I've heard... I've heard some conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories from people I trust. A lot of people, well, again, essentially the allegation I've heard is that, you know, you get the big guys in the intelligence agencies who are, you know, feeding the media and a few things like that. But I'm not going to get into that. But I did have one question for you on the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Far away. Which I I didn't tell you about before, but you you poked my interest. Is like they have come out with, um, you know, a lot of anti-China stories and... One of the one of the things that that they emphasise is like you know we we're here for an independent Australia without you know the foreign influence and we don't yeah. need Chinese influence and stuff like that. Now, I I I'm going to reference some of their work a bit later on on Xinjiang, which I thought was interesting. But they're also the Australian Strategic Policy Institute is 17% funded by foreign government agencies um, and 3% funded by defence contractors. Um, right. So that's that, that's not really you know independent independent, but do you have any thoughts on them? Uh, I have no problem with ASPE being funded by foreign governments or defence contractors as long as it's transparent. That's fine. Um, what I do have a problem with, frankly, is the rigour of their analysis and research. I mean, that, that's what I want the debate to be about, not about, its, um, not about its funding. For example, Peter Jennings is leading the charge to have the Darwin Port deal torn up. But as far as I can see, he hasn't actually advanced any compelling arguments to make that case. Um, instead, he's sort of, you know, vague threats. Um, so that's where I wish the um, attention was put when it comes to aspect. And, and indeed, you know what? He's gone further than that. I'm just going to say, can I, invite, can I vote him for a beta mail as well? Yeah, you can yeah, yeah Peter Jennings. Put, put him Jennings. on the list, Dougal. Um, on, um, on the... Just last Saturday's Australian, I'm not sure if you saw it, uh, but there was a, there was a, a major exclusive story um, alleging that China um, engineered the COVID-19 to, uh, as a bioweapon. Well, Peter Jennings rushed to put up his hand to comment on that piece, um, you know, describing that research that underpinned that allegation as being a smoking gun. We found the smoking gun. Well, everyone I know who has 
um, you know, who's a serious commentator on China, um, just finds that utterly ridiculous. So here you go, Dougal. Uh, just mm. to state it plainly, Peter Jennings, the executive director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, in my view, is spreading disinformation. That's my problem with them, not who their funding sources are. Mm. All right, Peter Jennings, you're going to get another you another whoop in there at the end of our segment. But, you know, the idea, it comes out, you know, the, the consensus I've heard of what people are talking about, that it comes out of this Wuhan lab. Now, what I find interesting is that the Wuhan lab was funded, or at least was uh, approved for funding by Dr. Fauci in America. And then even after the COVID pandemic came out, I think in uh, probably a few months ago, Fauci reapproved more funding for it. So if it did come out of that lab with the Chinese government, it must have had some level of oversight from Fauci. That gets us into a whole new web of conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I just, you know, just some of the commentary around it is just extraordinary. Um, you know, can, can you rule out that it didn't escape from the lab? No, you can't rule it out, right? Mm. And Australia's intelligence agencies haven't ruled it out. But that's very different to saying we found a smoking gun that they actually, you know, bioengineered this thing um, and there's a high probability it was released. Mm. I mean, that's... And, and then, when you dig into the story that was on the front page of the Australian, and you look at the evidence, oh, my God, utterly mm. embarrassing. Yet you have Peter Jennings, who I think is on a $400,000 taxpayer-funded salary, Dougal, mm. talking up that prospect. I mean, if you want a scandal, right, there's a scandal, not bloody some conspiracy in theory involving the Wuhan laboratory. Mm. Why are we talking more about that? I mean, you've got more media connections than me. I mean, that's what I just don't understand. Maybe I'll interview you next, you next week for the Acri podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm about to get, to get famous. Um, but, yeah, look, can I tell you what? I think that's a good segment. I'm going to tell – I'm going to try and – see if we can get it published all over the place anyone who'll take it peter jennings uh he's getting a, he's getting getting a hit from big james um <laughs> now what do we got next we got i believe it's time for fan questions now we had some great questions and some great submissions now we get our questions from instagram so when i post that story asking you for questions you make sure you're following us and so you can respond and get your questions read out so i got a few good ones from a few a few quite well-informed china watchers as well who i've who i was over there with for a period of time excellent um so sean lowry is asking with the escalating rhetoric between china and australia where do you see the relationship in three to five years Worse. Um, I see no prospect of it stabilising, let alone improving. Um, as I said before, uh, both sides are doubling down on their positions, they're hardening their stances, uh, they're blaming the other side entirely, and political support, domestic political support in both countries, is that there's a bit of a rallying uh, around the flag. So it's, you know, Morrison isn't under any political pressure domestically for his tough on China stance. Uh, maybe, maybe three to five years things might start to change uh, because over that period of time, the economic costs of, to Australia will increase. Um, for example, China will be able to uh, supply, find alternative suppliers of iron ore that it just can't find now. Um, yeah, so there's and China's own economy will demand less iron ore because it, as it moves away from infrastructure building towards you know consumption-driven growth, um, and also the other thing I think that's going to happen, Dougal, is that um, Austra the Australian public is going to become aware that the goods and services we used to sell and make a lot of money from in the Chinese market are now being snapped up by other countries, and guess what? They're our best mates. Mm. Right? 
Uh, I was looking at the trade data for a piece of the Lowy Institute just last month, and you're already seeing this in the case of food and beverages. By the way, I'm not having a crack at the United States, Canada, the UK, New Zealand, our Five Eyes buddies. It's exactly what we would do if mm. they were in the similar situation. That's just basic economics. But I think that's going to be a pretty hard sell for the Australian government to tell the Australian public why we should be locked out of that market while our best mates mm. are quite happy exploiting it. Mm. Mm. Now, Thomas Taylor, uh, he asked a, a couple of different uh, points. He firstly wanted to ask you about, I, I wasn't able to find this, he wants you to hear you talk about a uh, Twitter argument you had with Bill Bertels. Do you know? Do you know anything about that? Uh, was it a really recent one? I had a bit of a, a bit of two and four. You had a bit of a back, back and, and forth. forth yeah, with Bill on, on the weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was probably he actually follows his stuff quite closely. Right. I wasn't able to find it. What happened over the weekend with Bill? Sure. Okay. If, I hope I've got the right one. Mm. Um, by the way, Bill and I are fine, so there's there's no fundamental animosity there. Yeah, for but YouTube, for YouTube, <laughs> we're going to pretend you guys hate each other. <laughs> but uh, Bill and I, it's probably true to say that we have different points of view, um, different assessments of the Australia-China relationship, but that's fine. I've got, I've got no problem. You and I have different assessments. That That's not a problem. Um, so, gosh, this is going to be testing my memory. Um, one point that some people, I think Bill might make this point, is that every country is struggling in their China relationship at the moment, so it's not as if Australia is unusual. And my response to that is always, well, hang on, that's not quite right. You're right that plenty of countries have disagreements with China, plenty of them far more serious than we do. As I said before, you know, Indian soldiers, for example, have been killed mm. in the border dispute with China. Um, and yet, at the same time, they still have high-level political dialogue with China. They're not being um, hit with nowhere near the range of trade punishments that Australia is currently experiencing in, in its China relationship. And they're not having hysterical talk about war as well. So that's my point. I just think we've got the balance right. Yes, other wrong. Sorry, we've got the balance wrong. Plenty of other countries have problems, um, but they have cooperation with China that sort of balances it out. We don't. That's the problem. We've gone all in for confrontation, but we've got nothing else to point to um, to balance that mm. out. So that's probably what I was having a bit of. And, and, you know, there is this view that it, there's this silly line that comes out of Canberra all the time. Oh, well, you know, if you want to reset the relationship with China, what are you going to give up on, Dougal? What are you, are you going to tear up the foreign interference laws? What, mm. what are you going to kowtow to China on? Mm. Um, and my response to that, I think I probably made that point to Bill as well, is, well, how has Japan kowtowed? to China? How has India kowtowed to China? What about Singapore? What about Indonesia? What about New Zealand? I don't see them kowtowing to China. Mm. They're defending their interests, but they're doing it in a smart way. And so they still have dialogue with China and, mm. they don't, and their trade with China is still flowing freely. So that's that's it. But but I like Bill. Mm. 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 <laughs> I'm not going to vote him for a beta male. Put, put it that way. Yeah, Bill, Bill, if you really like Bill, you can put him on for an alpha male for next week. <laughs> um, he also says... Um, Tom continues, he says, everyone says we need to, quote, diversify away from China, keep them accountable and have a plan. But in reality, we probably can't have a clean break from China. How would you see this strategy play out if it was actually, you know, the clean break strategy? Yeah, well, well, we've, the data's in. So 
we've been talking about diversifying away from China since 2012. That's a whole Indo-Pacific foreign policy, right? We don't want to have all our eggs in the China basket. We want to be selling to... Oh, well, side note, I did apply for an Australian government scholarship, like a New Colombo Indo-Pacific type of thing. I made it to the final round and got rejected. Well, maybe that <laughs> was the killer mistake they made, Dougal, mm. by rejecting mm. you. Mm. Sad faces in the comments. <laughs> mm. um, well, I can tell you, and over the last year, this talk of diversification has just reached fever pitch level. Right, mm. I get the risk, right? But guess what? Our the proportion of our mm. exports going to China right now is at a record high. Mm. Getting at the point that um, fundamentally, what drives trade is not the decisions of security people in Canberra or politicians or bureaucrats. It's market forces, mm. right? It's 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 countries that want our products. That is, you have an economic complementarity there, and they're willing to pay for it. Um, look. I'm not against diversification, uh, fine, but I just can we just have a real conversation about mm. diversification? And what we've seen over the last... Here's some good news about diversification. Over the last year, um, China has struck Australian coal, struck Australian barley, for example. Well, Australian producers of those goods have actually been quite successful in quickly pivoting to, to other markets. But unfortunately, the story is not the same for our wine growers, our lobster fishers, and a few other industries mm. as well. Um, you know, some people that they, they, in Canberra, I just think they're the most um, naive people I can possibly imagine with no, you know, understanding of how international economics or business works. Mm. They just imagine that companies can, oh, if mm. we just want it enough, mm. wish it enough, then we'll be able to diversify. Mm. Sorry, it doesn't work like that. Mm. Well, can I tell you, over the past few months, probably six months, me and a few buddies um, have been trying to start, well, have actually started a import-export business with India, and it is one of the biggest headaches you could ever imagine. I mean, we called Austrade, for example, this is a side note, but relevant. We said, how are we supposed to do this? We said, Austrade, do you have any, can you help us get into India? And they said, look, I'm sorry to tell you, we have zero leads in India. And it's like, okay, we have, oh, it's like, you think, oh, we got another country, one and a half billion people, they'll buy our stuff. It's like, hold on, cowboy, not yet. <laughs> um, so I don't know if the clean break, break is really possible. Now, continuing on. Yep. We had Jim Lee, who's a big supporter of the show. His comment, he's Chinese-Australian, and his, uh, his original question was profanity-laced and imbued with sexual metaphor, so I'm going to rephrase it. Um, but he I should be laughing, should I? <laughs> so, <laughs> he, he essentially says, um, when is Australia going to start stop sucking up to America and start uh, kind of dealing logically with China? And I guess we've dealt with that a little bit, but... My yeah, head. look, I don't. There is this Chinese propaganda line that I don't want to buy into that we always just follow the Americans and we do whatever they, they want. I, I don't agree with that. I mean, that's mm. that's not true. Um, but what I would say, Dougal, is, and I'm, I, I'm all for the US alliance, let's stay in it, but it has become almost a civic religion. It has become the centre point, the centrepiece, sorry, of Australia's foreign policy. Mm. That's what I've got a problem with. Not that it's an important component of our foreign policy, but the whole, you know, the, the way we frame our entire foreign policy is built on the centrality of the US alliance. And my, my concerns there, and perhaps they're this, I think, was it Jim? Is that who he said it yeah, was? Yeah, Big Jim. Yeah, Big Jim. He's, perhaps he's got the same concerns. Um, US and Australia are great friends, but our interests are different because we're very, very different countries. The US is a superpower. We're obviously not. Um, we sell a lot of, um, you know, minerals products, agricultural products, services, while the US is more engaged in areas like, you know, high-tech manufacturing, for example. So the idea that we can somehow run some sort of de facto alliance with the US on foreign policy, 
um, you know, is a very troubling one for me. And, and I, I agree with Jim's sort of assertion that having a bit more, just um, you know, a bit of bit of uh, bit of self respect. Mm. That's what it's really about. Um, to run a foreign policy that's a bit brave and, you know, we're not, we're not so nervous about being abandoned. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Good. Well, Chad Parsons, he's our final guy, but he set us up with three quick ones. Mm. Um, he asked if a travel bubble with China is a good idea, and I haven't seen this in the news. Do you know anything about that? It's a great idea, but it's not going to happen because it involved, it, it required dialogue, dialogue between the two governments and there is no dialogue. <laughs> we don't have it. Okay. Yeah. Next one is he said... Um, we already covered this a little bit, but thoughts on Chinese buying Australian property? Um, well, let's stick to the facts and the evidence, and there's no evidence that China's taking over Australia by buying Australian property. Mm. And last one was the Australian media portrayal of China. We've already covered that, but I'm going to ask you, what did you give it out of 10 in terms <sighs> of uh, accuracy, um, good quality information? Can I give you a really... Yeah, this is a nerdy answer. You know, the average, the mean value um, is really affected by the fact that there's some great examples and some truly awful examples. So I think that's probably, rather than giving it a 5 out of 10 sort of an average, mm. I think that second point is what I'd like to focus on. There's some really good examples of, you know, it's just quality, rigorous, um, um, sober analysis of China in the Australian media. A great piece just this morning, if, you're, if you're, um, listeners are, you listeners, your viewers are interested by Anthony Galloway and Eric Bagshaw at the Sydney Morning Herald um, on the coronavirus as a bioweapon story. Really mm. good stuff. But the contrast to that, of course, in my view, is what we saw in the front page of The Australian on Saturday, uh, which was just a disgrace. But, you know, there's this bit of a idea, you know, we, let's line up a news court bashing. I don't want to do that because here's the problem. The Australian also has in my view, some of the best journalists mm. covering the China story, um, who I've just got huge respect for. So it kind of doesn't make sense even to bash a newspaper because there's a lot of diversity within that newspaper. bit long. I hope you don't think I'm avoiding the question, but I just think no, that's, that's probably the, the, the accurate way of answering it. That's good. It. That's, a, that's a better <laughs> answer than, than, a, than a score out of 10. You know we always try to provide the best, most informative journalism on this show. Um, so segment number three, Xinjiang. Yep. This is this is a big point. I mean, we talked about this a year ago, and I suppose the people who have kind of been involved with China or watching China have actually been concerned with this probably for the last five years or so. Maybe, you know, depending on how close you have been following it, you know, longer or shorter. But um, it's really kind of come into prominence really in the last year or so. And any time there's a, I would say, <coughs> foreign policy decision which has to get made about China uh, in terms of Australia's interests, it's justified on, like, human rights grounds yeah. um, about what's going on in Xinjiang. So for people who don't know, um, there is... Some people call them education camps. That's what the Chinese government says. Other people call them concentration camps, forced labour camps. Um, for the Muslim... Uh, Uyghur people in the Chinese province of Xinjiang. Um, so I don't know if you want to give a quick background on that, and then I want to talk a little bit about the Vicky Shu report from the from Aspie and and what she found out. Yeah, so I, I, I'm an economist, right? So I don't. I'm certainly not touting myself as a Xinjiang expert. Um, but you've got some serious, you know, at a minimum, cultural genocide. I think mm. we can. I think I'm pretty comfortable saying that. I mean, genocide, of course, has all other sorts of connotations, right? So, I don't really want to get into that. But in terms of a culture being suppressed and um, you know, on the way to being eliminated, if that's what cultural genocide is, 
I'm comfortable saying that's what's happening. That's my understanding of what's happening in Xinjiang today. Mm. Now, what does worry me is sort of something you mentioned just before, is that whenever we say something about China and foreign policy, it gets couched in, you know, sort of Xinjiang makes an appearance. And that, and when I hear the US government talking about it, that worries me a bit because I think they almost use it as a, as a club to bash China. You can bash China just on the facts. Mm. You don't need to kind of reach for this to, to you know, score against China in some other area. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Vicky Shu, who is a researcher with Aspie, who he gave a bit of a knock on before, um, did a kind of analysis of... She produced a report where she found that inside forced labour camps, um, there's a bunch of, like, 82, I think, well-known dozen... Uh, sorry, well-known brands um, that have these factories in their supply chains, including Apple, BMW, Gap, Huawei, Nike, Samsung... Sony and Volkswagen, among others. Now, I haven't actually read the report. Um, I just thought it was interesting and wanted to ask you about it. Have you seen it? Uh, I've seen it, but I've got to be honest too, and I apologise to Vicky because I haven't read it either. Mm. Um, you know, it, the the issue is clearly the important one, but I just I couldn't even make a comment on the rigour of the facts and evidence because mm. I just haven't read it. Mm. Okay, um, no problem. And so we got... Well, it was quite an interesting report. I'd encourage the, the listeners to view it, at least from the headlines that I read and some of the quotes I took out of it, um, which was estimating that up to 80,000 Uyghurs, or sorry, at least 80,000 Uyghurs were transferred out of Xinjiang to work in factories across China from 2017 to 2019. And those factories have become integral parts of like big brand supply chains. So there was a, a side story that came out from that as she was like, pretty strongly attacked within China on, I think, Chinese social media, yeah, yeah, which right. was a story in itself, which mm. is regrettable. Um, but if the story's true, you know, that's uh, there's nothing other to say, really, then that's that's bad. Then uh, Vicky being attacked? Well, both. Vicky oh, being attacked yeah, and correct. the report findings. Correct. Sign me up for both. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, James. We do have our Beta Mail of the Week section coming up, but that's just for the Patreon supporters. I'm sorry, but... If you could see behind a camera, which you can't, you'll see that our camera is taped to a tripod. So we do need to do some special things for the people who are donating to us. And we're going to get back to uh, that segment, which we'll post. You can find a link to the Patreon in the description. Uh, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can find us on the audio platforms. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're going to be releasing some hot takes on Twitter, I know for sure, because that got us going in the debate. You're going to get all my beta male quotes, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, You're going to put them up there. Oh, God. We're going okay, to get some yeah. news headlines. All right. Um, and that's basically all from me. Thank you very much, James. Where can people find you? I know you, t you love Twitter. Yeah, and it's a bad habit of mine, but you can find me at J underscore Lawrenson, L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E-S-O-N, on Twitter. That's probably where I hang out most mm -hmm. frequently in a public public realm. Well, we'll put that on in the description. We'll also plug in the Australia-China Relations Institute as well, so you can check them out. They do some good work. Thanks for sticking around. I appreciate it. I had a lot of, a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on, James. Great to be with you, as always, Dougal. We'll see you next time, boys and girls.